0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The sting of separation and the wearing of an uncomfortable truth is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Our discussion is about the 2.7 million children of prison inmates in the United States who are losing the right to visit their parents. Sylvia A. Harvey, an investigative journalist, is our guest. Her story about the diminishing opportunities for children to visit their incarcerated parents was the December 14th cover story for The Nation magazine. Some of Harvey's most cherished childhood memories are the times when she was able to visit her father while he was an inmate at Soledad State Prison in California when she was between the ages of five and 16. When Sylvia Harvey and I visited by phone from her home in New York City on January 18, 2016, we began with her personal experience and how now not being able to visit a parent in prison affects 2.7 million children.
1: One of my memories from an extended family visit when I was a kid was very reminiscent of being home. So when I was home, my father would cook. That was like his big thing. He loved to make home fries, like country fried potatoes and things that were some really big favorites of my brothers and I. So just really being in a room on the prison grounds at this family visit, but still feeling and smelling uh, the memories of home was, was profound. So it was something that was really important, being able to connect with my dad, to connect with my brother's and be a family, you know, for three days. So it was an amazing experience, and it's something that I just recognize is now being taken away from children today.
0: And being a family for three days, that in and of itself is a comment, I believe, on early childhood education, on what we learn prior to the time our memory goes back to maybe the age of six or seven. What stands out in your article to me is one in nine black children have a parent in prison. One in 57 white children has a parent in prison. And the broader effect that that has on society and the United States now.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a, a huge issue, right? We're thinking about how black and brown people are disproportionately incarcerated. And it shows, if we're looking at the number of of black children that are being affected by having a parent incarcerated, it just leads back to mass incarceration. So it's not just, oh, it happens to be that these children have more parents in prison. And so we have to look at the system. We have to think about what's happening from a systemic perspective, what's happening in terms of the sentencing, what's happening in terms of policing in our communities. All this stuff is just sort of goes back. So if we look at one in nine children, it goes back to the idea that black and brown people are being incarcerated at rates that are just astronomical. That's a huge issue.
0: So let's look at that system and that huge issue and what's behind it.
1: Well, I think it's it's hard to just pinpoint, right? I think that we know some of the issues um, if we're looking at a, a community of color and we're looking at a community that's over-policed, right? We're looking at Um, the tough-on-crime idea of incarcerating people for drug offenses, right? So we're looking at the three-strikes law, different things that are affecting communities of color at a higher rate and and what that says and what that does, you know, for the overall correctional system.
0: Some of those families have a voice. In your article, you talk about children uh, proud to tell their story.
1: It was almost a, a matter of coming out. It's something very private, and I think that people consider it to be private because of the way that it's perceived by society. And coming forward in this story was recognizing that this is a really big issue. It's an issue that's affecting families all across the country. And the more public you are about that issue, the more likely it is that other people will be comfortable in in recognizing what's happening to the family and also to see how policy can be affected to make change. If we're learning more about stories, more about families, more about a direct effect of losing these kinds of programs, the more likely it is that people are willing to tell their story.
0: Affecting policy to make change, what would be the appropriate changes that uh, you consider?
1: Well I would say first we have to continue to have programs that we know reduce recidivism, that we know continue to maintain family bonds. And I think that this program, the extended family visit visiting program, is one of those such programs. In um, New Mexico, this program was ended just last year, and it was supposedly ended because it saved $120,000 per year, and that's of a budget that's $293 million. So I think that if we look at something like that and recognize that the families had to pay a fee, and so they offset that cost by $40,000, But this is the program that was removed, but this is a program that we know is maintaining family bonds. We know that it's giving children access to their parent that's incarcerated, and we also know that visiting has continuously proven to reduce recidivism. So starting with programs like this and not cutting those programs, like saying these people need to have contact, and this is going to be helpful when they are released from prison. So I think that policy starts in small steps. Like... Not cutting these kinds of programs and then rethinking how we do visiting. So, if children are going to visit their parents in prison, what do those visits look like? What is the process to get inside the prison? Those are things that we have to think about from a perspective that recognizes family, that recognizes that the incarcerated are also human.
0: Sylvia, what do you see are the reasons why the prison authorities are? increasingly terminating and disallowing the extended family visits and conjugal visits?
1: Well, in the case of Mississippi, Christopher Epps, the former corrections commissioner, cited budgetary reasons associated with the visits as one of the reasons they were cut. But when I submitted a request to see the numbers under a Freedom of Information law request, the savings were never disclosed. And I reasoned that if there were significant savings, then the Mississippi Department of Corrections would have been happy to disclose the numbers. But the bigger issue and more problematic reason he listed was that even though contraception was provided, he was unclear on the number of children that were being born from these visits. And I think that leads back to the same fears of sexuality that produced these programs in the beginning.
0: And those fears are?
1: So the fear is that we have this population of people that are going to mass-produce children, and these children are going to be sent into single-family homes where they're going to perish. It's just unfortunate and problematic that one of the reasons is the number of children that could be produced from said visit.
0: What is the history of conjugal and later family visits in prisons in the United States?
1: So conjugal visits started in 1918 at Parchman, and they were born out of a derogatory racial stereotype. It was the idea that black men had uncontrollable libidos, and they needed to have some form of relief. So the idea was, let's let them have access to sex so they can work harder in the prison penal farming industry. And it wasn't until 1930 that white men were allowed these conjugal visits as well. And then in 1972, women were allowed these visits. And then in 1974, they launched the family visitation program, which was three to five days, and it was open to parents, siblings, and children in addition to spouses. So they started to shift the focus to rehabilitation and strengthening the family ties. In 1968 through the 1980s, we saw a number of states join the ranks.
0: And in the 1990s, it began to reverse and become limited. Can you tell us about that change?
1: Yeah, the 1990s seemed to mark a more punitive approach that took hold in corrections. In 1994, we see that President Bill Clinton signed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. And that was an act that implemented mandatory minimum sentences, enhancements, it widened the use of death penalty limited amenities for prisoners, including higher education, and it just continued after that. So the following year, we see the No Frills Prison Act, and that eliminated, in quotes, frills, anything that was deemed to be an unnecessary thing for prisoners, so wait equipment or unmonitored phone calls or clothing or hot plates to cook. And in 1996, Congress awarded grants to states to make prisoners serve as much of their sentence time as possible. So we just saw a consistent new approach to corrections that was less about rehabilitation and significantly more punitive in thinking. And from there, we just saw year after year, some of these programs just ended.
0: The next step from an economic or from a governmental perspective may be to end extended family visits. What do you see as the consequences of that?
1: Ending the extended family visit uh, is a detriment to the family bond. You can have the short visits, but if we think about the fact that children have to travel on average 100 miles to see their parents, and we're thinking about the costs that are associated with that, the gas or the transportation or the food, anything that's associated with that for such a small amount of time and such limited physical contact that if you actually have an extended visit, the costs related to that travel, to that visit, seem significantly more justified. And the bigger issue is that if we're taking away these extended family visits, it could lead to removing even more Uh, programs and visitation, which we see consistently happening um, in the jails. Currently, 74% of jails that implemented the new video visiting later banned in-person visits. So we're looking at jails that are adding video visitation at the expense of removing in-person visitation.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Sylvia A. Harvey, a researcher and a writer, whose December 2015 article about the effects on children whose parents are in prison was published in The Nation magazine, entitled, 2.7 Million Kids Have Parents in Prison. They're Losing Their Rights to Visit. Sylvia Harvey, can you please talk about the effect of family visits on recidivism and parole violations?
1: Yeah, I think we've seen time and time again that visitation is linked to the reduction of recidivism. Some of the most recent is the Minnesota Department of Corrections' in-depth study where they tracked over 16,000 offenders released from state prisons. And when other factors were controlled, the study showed that prisoners who received visits were 13% less likely to be convicted of felony after release and 25% less likely to have their probation or parole revoked. And Florida Correctional Facility did a similar study where they saw that the more visits you had, the less likely it was for you to recidivate. And I think that just time and time again we see that the Urban Institute did a study, Returning Home, Understanding the Challenges of Prisoner Reentry, and explored the pathways of prisoner reintegration and saw that these prisoners successfully reintegrated. They stayed off drugs. They found jobs. The more they were connected to their family prior to being released. So it's something we see that is evidence-based.
0: You talk about that as well in relationship for extended visits to be the most uh, helpful developmentally for children in terms of children seeing their parents as real and as humans. Can you talk about that perhaps in two factors, your personal experience and uh, the information that you gathered in preparing your paper?
1: Then Adelis Estrin, who directs the National Resource Center on Children and Families of the Incarcerated at Rutgers University, which I've quoted in my piece, talks about the idea of regular visits compared to extended family visits. And we know that if, like she says in a regular visit, there are very uncomfortable visiting arrangements. There's hard seats. There's limited face-to-face time. You can't touch each other. It limits the child's ability to go through cadence. And her reference to cadence is it's a series of group developmental stages therapists look at as form, storm, norm, and perform. It's the idea that you have enough time to go through a sequence of emotions and feelings. You get to recognize your parent fully. So if you have three days, the likelihood of you uh, having the opportunity to be upset with your parent arises, and you get to be upset, and you get to recover from that. And if you only have two hours to visit, the likelihood of you bringing up something that is difficult for you is is unlikely. And I'd say for me personally, there were times where I was upset about my father's incarceration and if you have three days, we get to talk about that. You know, my father was able to say this is what happened and this is why I am here.
0: Sylvia Harvey, what has your investigation shown about the effects on children of visiting their incarcerated parents?
1: I think that one of the big issues is that we don't have very much information about these children, right? We do know that it's a large number. We know it's 2.7 million children that have been affected, but we don't know in what ways. And I think that that is where we need to ask for government action. That's where we need to say, how is this something that's being done from a federal perspective? And we see that starting to happen. In 2012, the White House created a federal interagency working group called the Children of Incarcerated Parents. And what that does is evaluate the federal programs and policies that impact these children. So we're looking at research and running public education initiatives, but I think that federally funded programs that aid these children is what is very hard to find, and that's what we need more of. I think that we can look at the Department of Justice and see that they've awarded $53 million in grants to reduce recidivism in 2015. But only three of those grants, which totaled to a little more than $1.2 million, were committed to programs dealing explicitly with children of incarcerated parents. So I think that we need to allocate time, resources, and finances to figuring out how incarceration is directly affecting this, group. How is it affecting children?
0: Sylvia Harvey, I'd like you to uh, share with us what the Muppets have done, uh, what the Sesame Street workshop has done on this issue.
1: I think Sesame Street has really broke some amazing ground. The initiative is called Little Children Big Challenges. It's a number of free multimedia resources for families that have young children that are affected by appearance, imprisonment. And what you you see is Alex. So Alex is blue-haired, green-nosed Muppet that has his father incarcerated. And it just plays out a scene where Alex is talking to the other Muppets, and they're talking about getting their dads to make toy cars for them. And you see that Alex is having a very difficult time because he can't have his father help him make these toys. And then we see Alex finally say that his parent is incarcerated and that's why he's not present to help and how that makes him feel and how he has this level of shame. So I think that Sesame Street is really tackling something important, and that's the idea of shame and that's the idea of access and communication. So we, we get to have a Muppet that a lot of children can relate to. And I think that that's important, that's something that, that hasn't been done. I think that it also says that this is a huge problem if we see that Sesame Street's Sesame Workshop has decided that there is a need for a child or a Muppet to have a parent incarcerated to show what that does to society and to children.
0: Going back to your personal experience... Uh, The visits that you had with your father ended in 1997, at the end of your privacy with your father. How old were you at that time?
1: The extended family visits ended for specific demographic of prisoners, and my father happened to be one of those. Uh, I believe I was 16 at the time, and things changed, right? So the idea was you no longer have this private access to your parent. So you figure out other ways to maintain your bond. And that really consisted of going up for regular visits. It consisted of when I turned 18, making a pact to going every Saturday if I could. And that just sort of continued with letters and phone calls and sort of, yeah, I just, just continued after that. But after the visits were taken away, it was obviously a huge blow. But what do you do?
0: Maybe you could share with us what you have done. Obviously, you have written extensively about it, researched extensively about it, and you mentioned earlier policy changes.
1: Yeah, I think that it's important to recognize what has happened from a personal perspective, and what is currently happening to children across the country. And I think that talking about it, writing about it, bringing attention to the matter is the first step. So for the number of people that had no idea that there were these types of visits, now they have an understanding of the kind of access that children did have to their incarcerated parents. And it's something that we can think about and saying, what what was this like what has it done, and also look at other states like New York and California and Washington that continue to have these visits and continue to say what these visits do for the demographic that it serves.
0: Well, Sylvia Harvey, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you share with us an aha or eureka moment uh, that has affected your life or changed your approach to your world?
1: Uh, I would say it was probably during a meeting years ago in Oakland at a meeting at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. And it was me and a group of other young activists. And we're having a meeting about the writers. The writers were a group of police officers that were planting drugs on young men in the community and framing them. And we continuously tried to have our voices heard. We would call different newspapers or different television stations to tell them what we knew was happening, and nothing was done. And it wasn't until a number of months later that it appeared in newspapers after one of the rookie police officers came forward. And it was in that moment that I thought, how do I take up space where I can be a voice for people that don't have access to telling their stories. And that's when I thought about journalism. Like, I've always thought I'd be a lawyer, which is still possible. But in that moment, I thought I could take up this on my own. I could be a voice, and I could be in a space where I don't have to depend on anyone else. I can tell the stories of the people, and that's what I'm doing.
0: And what would you like to do, maybe you just answered this, but what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life?
1: Wow, that's it's such a huge, I guess, question. I think I want to be present, right? And when I say present, I mean be present and aware and conscious and continuously respond, right? When I see something I consider to be an injustice, when I see something I think needs to be covered, is to do my part in covering what needs to be covered, to do my part in telling the stories that need to be told, to do my part in moving our society forward in a just way.
0: And finally, Sylvia Harvey, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners?
1: Oh, wow, there's so many books that I can recommend. Let's see. But you know what I would do? I would actually recommend something that's a bit quicker and easier And it's a song. It's Nina Simone's Ain't Got No. And I think it's just such a powerful song to think about and figure out, what do I want to do? What am I doing here? Where do I want to go? And it only takes three minutes. So I'd recommend a song.
0: Well, Sylvia Harvey, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Sylvia Harvey is an independent freelance journalist based in New York City. Her article discussing 2.7 million children losing the rights to visit an incarcerated parent in prison was published in The Nation magazine on December 14, 2015. Instead of recommending a book, Sylvia Harvey recommends the song Ain't Got No by Nina Simone. This program was recorded on January 18, 2016.
2: Ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweater, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no bed, ain't got no mind. Ain't got no mother, ain't got no culture, ain't got no friends, ain't got no schooling. Ain't got no love, ain't got no name Got my blood I've got life should be good. That's groovy.
0: Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is seven oh seven four six two six five four one, and the address is two eight zero North Oak Street, Ukiah, UKIAH, California. 95482 Christina Honested and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.